first thing it was this morning. <coughs> and turn to Genesis chapter 14. <coughs> Genesis chapter 14 this morning. And let's read from <coughs> verse 10 as we begin. Genesis chapter 14 and verse 10. It says, In the vale of Siddim was full of slime pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled and fell there. And they that remained fled to the mountain. And they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their victuals and went their way. And they took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom and his goods and departed. Let's open with a word of prayer. <coughs> Dear Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you once again uh, that, Lord, we can be here today in this place, that we can come and spend time together as a body of believers. We pray that you would bless our time gathered around your word, that you would teach us, uh, instruct us this morning. And may we receive a blessing and a challenge. May we be refreshed uh, by your word. I pray, Lord, that this morning you would empower me through the Spirit. You give me wisdom and guidance, Lord, that only you can give. And that you strengthen me uh, now to preach your word, I pray. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> I have to excuse my voice this morning. I'll do my best. It's so a bit croaky this morning. In Genesis chapter 13, of course, last week we, we saw Abraham and Lot uh, finally part ways after traveling from Ur up to Haran, down to the land of Canaan, going down to Egypt together and then back up to the land of Canaan. And of course, as they returned from Egypt, they were both very rich men. Okay? Um, they'd gone down to Egypt against the Lord's wishes, but they'd come back with a lot of substance. They'd come back with many servants. They were both rich, and so it wasn't long before there was conflict uh, between their servants fighting over the land, fighting over the, the best grazing grounds, the best water holes. And the conflict, as we saw last week, had the potential to boil over, it had the potential to even destroy uh, the relationship of Abraham and Lot. And so we saw Abraham take the lead and he offered a solution. And of course, the solution was very simple. No, they needed to separate. They needed to go to different regions of the land of Canaan. And, you know, we saw that Abraham, <clears throat> when it came to deciding who took what portion of the land, we saw Abraham graciously, uh, meekly, uh, self, selflessly, he offered Lot the first choice. He didn't have to do that. Yeah, he was the one called by God to go to Canaan. It was his promised land, not Lot's. But he graciously gave Lot first choice. And we saw Lot, in turn, making his decision was very selfish. And he was driven by a material uh, gain. That was what he was looking at, materially what was best for him. He was led by sight, not by faith. Walking by sight, not by faith. And so he made this decision to take the plain of Jordan, this lush, fertile ground. That's where he wanted to go and live and dwell. And we saw that there in that plain, there was these five wicked cities. Of course, the two most prominent being Sodom and Gomorrah. In chapter 13, verse 13, the Lord tells us what he already thought about Sodom. It says there in verse 13, But the men of Sodom were wicked and sinners before the Lord exceedingly. And so already they were a wicked, sinful people. Before Lot moved there, they were already wicked. And of course, at first, Lot didn't go and dwell in the city of Sodom. He merely pitched his tent towards Sodom. 
And so at first he remained separate. He was just dwelling in the region, enjoying the advantages of the cities around him. But by the time we get to chapter 14, he's now moved in. He's now living in Sodom. He's now part of the people. He's not separate from them anymore. He's one of them, dwelling with them. Now, as we saw last week, <clears throat> you know, even though at times it may look like he's not, Lot actually is a just man. Peter tells us that in the New Testament. He's a just man. But he's a just man who's living a carnal life. He's living out of fellowship with God, if you like. He's a backslidden believer. He's not where God wants him to be, and so it's not long before the effects of his sin are going to be felt. And in chapter 14, what we see is we see God using the events of the world to deal with his backslidden servant, Lot. He uses the events of the world to deal with Lot. And so the first of all, this morning, we see God's chastisement of Lot. God's chastisement of Lot here in verses 1 to 12. <coughs> we won't read it just now. We'll read it once as we need to. We've already seen that it's a difficult passage to read. But here in chapter 14, we have recorded for us the very first war in the Word of God. That doesn't mean there hasn't been conflicts before this. Without doubt, there has been. But this is the very first time we see a war being recorded for us in the Scriptures. And the whole reason that this conflict is recorded here is because of how it affects Lot and Abraham. Okay, and how it affects uh, the, uh, the course of history in God's uh, sense what God's trying to do with mankind. That's the reason it's here. I mean, we don't read of Lot until we get down to verse 12. There's nothing, no mention of him in the first 11 verses. It's all to do with these heathen kings and what they're doing. And so the war is recorded there because of how, how God uses it to affect his servants. Uh, Wearsby writes this, It would not be included here had it not involved Abraham. The Bible records a great deal of history but as Dr. A.T. Pearson said, history is his story. In the Bible, historical facts are often windows for spiritual truth. And that's certainly the case here. This historical event is recorded because of how God, God uses it to work in the lives of his servants. And, and it teaches us spiritual truth. And so as the chapter begins, we read of this confederacy of four kings from the east. Look there in verse 1. It says, And it came to pass in the days of Amraphel, king of uh, Shinar, Ariok, king of Alassa, and Chedor uh, Laamur, king of Alam, and Tedel, king of nations. And I practice these names numerous times, but you wouldn't know it, so forgive me as I make a, a mess of them this morning. But in verse 1, we read of these four kings. These four kings from the east, and they've come all the way around to make war with the five kings here in the the valley or the, the plain of Jordan. Okay? And so basically what they've done is they've gone right up basically the same route that Abraham took to come across. Okay? Remember he went up from Ur up to Haran and all the way down. That's what they've done. They've traveled all the way around, around the desert there. They've come down to deal with these five kings in the plain. We see that in verse 2. It says that these may war with uh, Bera, king of Sodom, and with uh, uh, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, uh, Shinab, king of Adma and Shem, Shemeber, king of Zeboam, and the king of Bela, which is Zawar. And these join together in the Vale of Siddim, which is the Salt Sea. Okay, so we see these eastern kings mentioned in verse 1. They're from this region over where Abraham 
and Lot originally came from. Okay, that's where they're from. They're from over there, and they've come right around to deal with these five kings of these cities here in the plain of Jordan. Uh, Morris writes this. He says, This confederacy consisted of the kings of Shinar, which is Babylon, okay, Babylonia, Alassa, which is the leading tribe in southern Babylonia, Alam, the original kingdom of Persia, and Goim, which is translated nations in verse 1, but probably a tribe of northeastern Babylonia. And so if you look at a map, <coughs> a map that actually has these listed, where they are is they're basically all where Ur is. They're all around the same region as Ur, okay, the Chaldees, where Abraham originally came from. And so these are uh, the nations that he was dwelling amongst, okay? These are the cities that he was near originally. They're the cities that are now coming to attack, uh, to attack sorry, these five kings in the plain of Jordan uh, from the Babylonian region. That's where they're from. <clears throat> from verse 4 and 5, we learn the reason why they've come. Okay, it says in verse 4, 12 years they served Chador Leomer, and in the 13th year they rebelled. And in the 14th year came Chador Leomer, and the kings that were with him and smote uh, the Rephaims and in Ashtaroth, uh, Kanaim, and the Zuzims in Ham, and the Emins in Sheveh, Korea, Thiam. Okay, so in verse 4, we learn they've come. The reason they've come is to deal with a rebellion. Okay, obviously there was a previous war before this, okay, where Tadur Lomer has come across and he has defeated them and he's put them in subjection. Okay, and they've served him, it says in verse 4, for 12 years they've been in servitude, paying taxes, you know, to this king from the west, from Babylon, basically. Okay. Uh, from the east, sorry. They've been paying, ser- paying taxes. They've been serv- servants to him. But now, after this, they've rebelled. Okay? They've rebelled against him, and now in the 14th year, he's come across to crush this rebellion. And so that's the reason why he's mobilized these forces. That's why Chedeh Leomurhi has come, okay, to deal with this rebellion against him. And we learn that he didn't just concentrate on these five cities. Okay? He doesn't just come around and walk through everybody's land and come and deal with them, he actually defeats everybody along the way. Okay, he leaves a trail of destruction, uh, destroying basically every city, every region that he comes across. Okay, in verse 5, <clears throat> we read it before, it says, In the fourteenth year came Tadolamur and the kings that were with him and smote the Rephaims in Ashroth, Kanaim, and the Zuzims in Ham, and the uh, Mims in Shebeh, Kerathiam, and the Horites in Mount Seir unto El Paran, which is by the wilderness. And they returned and came to En Mishpat, which is Kadesh, and smote all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites and that dwelt in Haz- uh, Hazazon Tamar. Okay, so in verse 5 and 7, where we learn about all the places that he's ravished along the way. Okay, and basically the invading army crushed every tribe surrounding the plain of Jordan. Okay? They crushed every city surrounding the plain where these five cities were located. Okay? Um, when you look at a map, they basically they've traveled down what's called the King's Highway on the east side of the Jordan River. The King's Highway is actually referred to in Numbers chapter 20. Just turn over there. <coughs> Numbers 20. In 
in Numbers 20, verse 17. It says, Let us pass, I pray thee, through thy country. We will not pass through the fields or through the vineyards, neither will we drink of the water of the wells. We will go by the king's highway. We will not turn to the right hand nor to the left until we have passed thy borders. And so Numbers 20, verse 17 talks about the king's highway. Okay, basically it was on the east side of the Jordan. They would travel down uh, that side of the Jordan River and then they travel around and basically go into Egypt. Okay, this was the king's highway. And so this is the, the route that these four kings from the east are following. And as they travel down the eastern side of the Jordan, they crush the tribes that, or the cities that are to the north of these five cities of the plain. They then travel around them, so they basically bypass them. Okay, they've come down the eastern side and trying to do it your way around, down the eastern side of the Jordan. They bypass around these five cities and they keep traveling down further to the south all the way down to a place called El Paran in verse 6 before they turn and they go up to the, up this way and they end up at Kadesh, which is to the southwest of the Jordan Valley. So they've basically encircled them, okay, and they've destroyed every city. Uh, the archaeologists who've looked at, at this, this route and looked at this, this war uh, have noted the trail of destruction. Okay? They basically decimated the land as they came through, destroying every city and leaving in complete ruin with nothing left. And they've encircled them. And the whole point of that is they're cutting off any means of reinforcement. That's what they're doing. They're cutting off any means of any of their allies coming to help. They're destroying a lot of them. So they're on their own as they finally meet with the five kings, the, the kings that they had come to deal with. Okay? They finally arrive at them after dealing with everyone else first. And we find that in verse 8. It says in verse 8, <coughs> back there in <coughs> Genesis 14, it says, And there went out the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah and the king of Admar and the king of Zeboam and the king of Belah, uh, the same is Zawar, and they joined battle with them in the vale of Siddim. Okay, so here we have them finally come to their main objective. Okay, the, the four kings have done all this. They've come around, dealt with all these other cities, and finally they've come to their main objective, which is these five cities. The two most prominent, of course, Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay, so the five cities of the plain of Jordan have come out and met with the four kings of the east. And they join battle in a place called the Vale of Siddim. Now the word Siddim there means fields. And so basically it means the Vale of Fields. Okay. And it's probably given this name because it was a place of high fertility. Okay? It was a place of extensive agriculture. Okay? This is a fertile piece of land. And back in verse 3, this same region is identified by Moses, because okay, he's the one writing this. It's identified by Moses as being the Salt Sea. So it's in verse 3. And these were joined together in the Vale of Siddim, which is the Salt Sea. And so this would seem to indicate, many agree, that this seems to indicate to us that the Vale of Siddim now lies at the bottom of the Salt Sea or the Dead Sea as we know it today. Okay? That is where this battle takes place, in the Vale of Siddim, the Salt Sea. That's the Dead Sea. That's where this battle took place. Okay? And of course, the, the Dead Sea, that whole region changed when Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed by God in chapter 19. Okay, and we'll get there with fire and brimstone from heaven. The whole uh, area changes. Okay? But archaeological evidence points to the fact that before that, the region was a lush, fertile piece of land. 
You had the fresh water of the Nile flowing down there out across the plain and it was a fertile place. It's this fertile plain that led Lot to move here in the first place. Okay? He looked out and he saw the plain of Jordan, the Vale of Sin, and he saw all this. That's what attracted him to move there in the first place. <clears throat> and so it's here in the Vale of Siddim, the region of the Dead Sea, that the battle now takes place. And even though it would seem like, you know, these five kings should have the advantage, shouldn't they? I mean, it's five kings against four. They're, they're in their home territory. It's their land. They know it best. It seems like they should have the advantage. But in fact, they're soundly beaten by the four kings from the east. We see that in verse <clears throat> verse 10 there. It says, And the vale of Sidon was full of slime pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled and fell there. And they that remained fled to the mountain. Verse 10 describes how there were slime pits there, or bitumen pits, okay, in the vale. And as they fled from the enemy, they fell there. Now, this can be interpreted one of two ways. It either means that as they fled from the enemy, the enemy caught up with them at the slime pits, okay, that's where they caught up with them, and that's where they were killed. Or it may mean as they fled, they fell into the slime pits and they perished. But either way, they're soundly beaten by the enemy. Okay, to the point where they're fleeing, they're in disarray, and those that remain, it says, they flee to the hills, to the mountains around. And in verse 11 and 12, we finally now see Lot come into the picture. Okay, verse 11, it says, And they took <clears throat> all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their victuals and went their way. And they took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelled in Sodom and his goods and departed. We learn the, these kings from the east, the four kings from the east. They ransack Sodom and Gomorrah, probably the other cities too. They ransack the cities, they take all the goods, and they take the people as captives. And amongst them is Lot. Lot finally enters the narrative. Now, as you read those first 11 verses, you do wonder, why is this here? What's the whole point of this? It's because of Lot. Okay, but Lot doesn't enter the picture here till verse 12. And Lot and his family are taken captive. Their possessions are seized and they're part of this, this gang that's now being marched up the Jordan Valley on the way back to the east. And we saw earlier that, you know, in a historical sense, the motivation behind this battle, the motivation for Chador Leomer coming to attack these cities was because they had rebelled against him. That was the historical reason for the battle. This is what brought them to ransack the region. But God had a greater purpose for this event. God had a greater purpose. The purpose was the chastisement of one of his servants, this man Lot. As we saw last week, Lot, walking by sight, not by faith, had moved ever closer to the sinful city of Sodom. You know, he'd set his eyes upon the plain, he'd moved down there, he pitched his tent towards Sodom, and now he's actually in Sodom. He's dwelling in the city itself. He's living a carnal, sinful life out of fellowship with God. His eyes are on worldly things. That's what he's concerned with. He's enjoying the pleasures that Sodom and Gomorrah had to offer. Lot is not in a place of blessing, is he? He's not where God wants him to be. Now, Psalm chapter 1, verse 1, describes perfectly, if you like, his progression downward progression away from the Lord. We know this verse, Psalm 1, <clears throat> talking about the blessed man. 
Of course, Lot is the very opposite of this. Psalm 1, <clears throat> verse 1 says, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. You know, Lot, he had walked according to the counsel of the ungodly. Lot had found himself standing in the way of sinners. And indeed, Lot now was sitting with them. He was dwelling with them. He was a part of them. And so God allows this army here to take him captive. God uses this to chastise his servants. You notice God's grace here as well? Because you notice that Lot doesn't get killed by the enemy. You know, God could have allowed him to be slain here. God could have ended his life here. But God graciously spares his life and Lot is only taken captive by the enemy. So as I said, this is God's way of disciplining Lot's. This is God's way of reminding Lot that he has no business in Sodom. He has no business being there. This was not where he ought to be. He should have been like Abraham, remaining separate, remaining apart from the heathen nations. He shouldn't have gone and dwelt with them. He shouldn't have gone and become part of them. Now, Weasby wrote this. He said, Abraham was the friend of God, but Lot was the friend of the world. In time, Lot conformed to the world and when Sodom lost the war, Lot was condemned with the world. And that's the point here. Lot became the friend of the world. That's what his priority was. And he now suffered the consequences of it. There was the chastisement of the Lord upon him. And in this moment of time, as Lot is led away captive, Lot has lost everything, hasn't he? <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> He's lost everything. You know, the whole reason he'd moved there is because of the material gain that it would give him. That's why he went there. And he's lost all of that. Everything he sought after is taken away. All of his wealth is gone. It's been seized by the enemy. <clears throat> Even his freedom is gone. And he's been marched up the, the Jordan Valley along with all the other captives to be taken back to the east. You know, God allowed all of this to take place. God allowed this to happen a lot, to chastise his servant. If you like, this was God's stern wake-up call. This is a wake-up call for Lot. You know, if like Lot we live for the world, walking by sight and not by faith, then we will find ourselves, as we saw last week, out of fellowship with God. If we walk by sight, not by faith, and we make the decisions by sight, we'll find ourselves out of fellowship with the Lord. We'll find ourselves in a place God doesn't want us to be, out of the... Uh, out of blessing, not experiencing God's hand of blessing upon us. But you know, the wonderful thing is that like Lot, God doesn't just give up on us, does he? God doesn't just give up on us. But rather, God graciously, lovingly chastises us in order to bring us to repentance. You know, Proverbs chapter 3, let's turn over there, <clears throat> speaks about the chastisement of the Lord. Proverbs 3, and this same passage is, quote in the Hebrews, but Proverbs 3, <clears throat> verse 11. Proverbs 3, verse 11 says, My son, despise not the chastising of the Lord, neither be weary of his correction. For whom the Lord loveth, he correcteth, even as the father of the son in whom he delighteth. Proverbs speaks about the chastisement of the Lord. God's correction is motivated by his love for us. That's why God corrects us. That's why God chastises us. Because he loves us. Because we are his children and he wants what's best for us. 
And you know, sometimes what we need is like Lot to be given a stern wake-up call. That's what we need sometimes as believers. We need the Lord to give us that stern wake-up call. We need the chastisement of the Lord. You know, that chastisement of the Lord is not very pleasant, is it? It's not something we want. It may be a hard trial we end up going through, and it's not pleasant to be chastised by the Lord. Lot certainly didn't find it pleasant. But the reality is it's always for our good. It's always for our good. And you know, we can be sure that if it's the chastisement of the Lord, God's in complete control of it, isn't he? And so God's not going to allow it to go further than he wants it to. You see, God's in control of it. God has a reason for it. But we need to respond in the right way to the chastisement of the Lord. And we see now, secondly, we see God's gracious deliverance of Lot. God's gracious deliverance of Lot. Go back to chapter 14 with me. Genesis 14 and read from verse 13. It says, And there came one that had escaped and told Abram the Hebrew, for he dwelt in the plain of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of a skull, the brother of Aner, and these were confederate with Abram. And when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his trained servants, born in his own house, 318, and pursued them unto Dan. And he divided himself against them, he and his servants by night, and smote them and pursued them, them unto Hobar, which is on the left hand of Damascus. And he brought back all the goods, and also brought again his brother Lot, and his goods, and the woman, women also, and the people. <clears throat> now, just as God had used <clears throat> the invading army to chastise his servant Lot, God now uses Abraham to rescue Lot. See, as I said, God doesn't allow the chast- his chastisement to go further than he wants it to. And so God here had a plan for it, and now he uses Abraham to bring him out of this plight that Lot finds himself in. You know, Abraham, until this point, had watched on from afar. He watched as these events had taken place. It's happening on the other side of the Jordan from where he is. And so he's seen these things unfold, but now he is motivated into action upon hearing the news of Lot's fate. Verse 13, we see that one escaped from the battle and he comes and informs Abraham of the news. It says in verse 13, And there came one that had escaped and told Abram the Hebrew. Abraham here is called Abram the Hebrew. Now the word Hebrew here is used for the very first time in the word of God. And it's a title that signified Abraham to be an outsider. Weasby writes this, He was Abram the Hebrew, which means the outsider, the person with no secure place in society. You see, this title is a reminder that Abraham is doing what God said. He is staying separate. Okay, Even though he's dwelling in the land of Canaan, he's surrounded by these heathen nations, these heathen people. He had not become part of them. He's dwelling amongst them, but he was not of them. Okay, He was still separate. Now, he'd made confederacies with some of them, as the end of verse 13 tells us. He'd made agreements with some. He was at peace with them, but he was not part of them. He was separate. He was a pilgrim, as we talked about a few weeks ago, a pilgrim in the land. And so this clearly, this title here, Abram the Hebrew, distinguished him from all the other inhabitants of the land. He was different. And when Abraham receives this information, we find that he immediately springs into action. We see that in verse 14. It says, And when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he 
he armed his trained servants, born in his own house, 318, and pursued them unto Dan. <clears throat> Abraham receives this terrible news, and immediately he responds by arming his trained servants and pursuing after these four kings who've captured his nephew Lot. He immediately acts out of love here, and he, he seeks to save Lot. He risks his own life. And he risked the lives of his men to his servants to save Lot. Now think about that for a moment. Lot really has done nothing to deserve this, has he? He's done nothing to deserve this kind of love and this kind of response from Abraham. In the previous chapter, we saw him self, selfishly choose the best of the land, the best portion for himself, leaving Abraham with the, the, the lesser part leaving Abraham with the, the more barren, unproductive land. He'd been completely selfish. Lot had gotten himself into this mess by his sin, because he was walking by sight. He got himself into this mess, and now he's suffering the consequences of his own stupid decisions, isn't he? He got himself in this place. You see, Abraham had every reason here to completely ignore Lot, to ignore Lot, ignore his plights, you know, he could have simply reasoned that it wasn't his problem. He could have reasoned that it's safer not to get involved. And indeed, this would have been the reaction of many in a similar situation. You know, one commentator noted this, common prudence would have urged him not to embroil himself. Be thankful that you have escaped and do not meddle further in the business, lest you make these mighty kings your foes. Indeed, that would have been the mindset of many, wouldn't it? You know, don't meddle in it. Don't meddle in this. It's not your problem. Don't meddle because you might experience the wrath of the kings upon you. Don't meddle in it. Leave it alone. Let the Lord deal with it. That would have been the response, the mindset of many. But Abraham here instead is motivated by love. Love for, he calls him in verse 14, his brother. He cares for it, doesn't he? He has a, a great care for him. Even though it's his nephew, he has great care for him. He's motivated by love and he immediately acts to save him. Now we see here Abraham once again showing us that he is spiritually minded, as we talked about last week. He's spiritually minded, he's walking by faith, and his concern here once again is for others rather than himself. Goetz writes this, he says, Abraham's reaction was indeed a remarkable demonstration of self-denial, self-control, and self-sacrifice. In the New Testament language, he turned the other cheek toward an ungrateful, self-indulgent, and egotistical relative who was interested only in feathering his own nest. <clears throat> Describes Lot perfectly. That's what he was. But, Lot, but Abraham here, his reaction is one of self-denial, self-control, self-sacrifice. You see, Abraham is a wonderful example of what it means to show Christ's love unto others. Even when others have mistreated us, even when others have taken us for granted, they trample it all over us. As believers, we are commanded by Christ to turn the other cheek, as it says in Matthew chapter 5 and 6 there. Turn the other cheek. And to continue instead to treat them with love. Paul speaks about this in Romans chapter 12, doesn't he? Let's go to Romans 12. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Romans 12. Again, I'm sure we know this passage well, but Romans 12, verse 17. 
It says, Recompense to no man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, say, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in doing so, they shall heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, we will at times be mistreated by people, even by people close to us. They will mistreat us. They will take us for granted. They'll trample all over us. But we are commanded to overcome evil with good. We're commanded to turn the other cheek. We're commanded to show them love. And that's what we see Abraham doing here. He puts his life on the line for Lot. From the end of verse 14, we we learn that Abraham has uh, 318 armed servants. That's all he has. It says in verse 14, And when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his trained servants, born in his own house, 318, and pursued them unto Dan. He has 318 servants to pursue after the four kings from the east and their mighty army. Now from verse 24, it does seem like he some of his allies go with him. We're not told how many go, but in verse 24 it says, Save only that which the young men of Eden and the portion of the men which went with me, Aner, Eskol, and Mamre. Let them take their portion. So it seems like his allies, the ones he was confederacy with, they went with him. <clears throat> so how many men they have, we don't know. But the point is, this is a small army, isn't it? This is a small little band, and they march out against this large army of the four kings. It's no match. Surely this is no match for this mighty army that has completely ravished the region. As I said earlier, they've come down and they've laid a a trail of destruction behind them, defeating everyone along the way, defeating the five kings of the plain, and they're going back in victory. Now surely Abraham's little band is no match for this mighty army. But you know, Abraham here in faith pursues after the enemy. Trusting God to give him the victory. Now, as, you, as I read that this week, I couldn't help but think of Gideon and his 300. Gideon is 300 going out against the Midianites, going out against the odds to gain a victory. Gideon had his faithful 300. Abraham has his faithful 318. It's a very similar number, isn't it? He has his little band and he goes out against the odds and God gives him a mighty victory. Now, we see that victory described there. The end of verse 14, it says, And pursued them under Dan, and he divided himself against them, he and his servants by night, and smote them, and pursued them unto Hobar, which is on the left hand of Damascus. And he brought back all the goods, and also brought again his brother Lot, and his goods, and the women also, and the people. Abraham and his small band, they pursue after the enemy, and they catch up with them at Dan. And they come upon them at night. It says that he divided them up. And he, similar strategy again, it seems, to Gideon. He comes upon them at night, and they evidently surprise the enemy. And the enemy is surprised by this. They're in disarray, and they flee to the north. But Abraham doesn't give up. He continues to pursue all the way to the north of Damascus, where he finally catches up with them, and he rescues Lot. Not just Lot, but he rescues all of the captives, and he rescues all of the goods that have been stolen. He brings back everything. This mighty army that has ravished the whole region, defeating everyone along the way, 
one victory after another, is now left in disarray because of God's faithful servant and his faithful little band. Those that were left are now fleeing back to home empty-handed. They've got nothing left, they're fleeing. Now God truly gave Abraham a mighty victory in a seemingly impossible victory. You know, as we know, God is the God of the impossible. You know, most importantly with this victory here, God graciously rescued Lot. That's the, the most important bit that comes out of this. God graciously rescues Lot from what would certainly be a life of slavery. You know, he's been taken all the way back to the east now. He's a captive. What's in store for him? He's going to be a slave. That's what he's going to spend the rest of his life doing. His freedom's gone. But God graciously rescues him. Abraham is used by God here to bring him back safely from the enemy. You know, this was God graciously giving Lot another chance, a chance to start again, a chance to start again. This was an opportunity for Lot to make wiser decisions. This was an opportunity for him to seek the Lord. This was an opportunity for him to obey the Lord. You know, sadly, Lot doesn't learn his lesson. He doesn't learn from all this. He doesn't repent of his sin. He doesn't deal with his, his sin in his life. He doesn't turn to the Lord in faith and start walking by faith. Instead, what does he do? He returns back to Sodom. He goes straight back to Sodom once more. Weasby wrote this. He said, Neither the Lord's chastening nor the Lord's goodness in rescuing Lot did him any good. The, the goodness of the Lord should have led him to repentance. But instead of repenting, Lot returned to Sodom. He could have been reunited with Abraham, but he chose to go back to sin. It's a sad reality here. It's a sad end to a, to a story. You know, you see the chastisement of the Lord, you see the, the gracious deliverance of God, and usually what you expect is the repentance of God's servant. But no, what we see is Lot go back to his sin, he goes back to his wickedness, he goes back to his life in the world, back to Sodom. He doesn't learn from the chastening or the goodness of the Lord. You know, if he had listened to the Lord at this point, think of all that he could have been spared. He could have been spared all the heartache that was to come in chapter 19 as he has to flee the city and his his wife ends up dying as she looks back and then as he ends up in sin with his daughters. He could have been spared all of that heartache, all of those problems if he'd listened to the Lord, if he responded here. He could have experienced the joy and blessing that comes by walking, sorry, it comes from walking by faith. He could have experienced the blessing that comes from a close relationship with the Lord. But instead, because he goes back to his sin, he's going to endure even more severe consequences to his sin. You know, as believers, as I said earlier, God deals with us as his children. He loves us, and therefore there will come times when we will experience the chastening of the Lord. If we get out of fellowship with God, we'll experience His chastening hand upon us. If we go astray, you know, there will be times also when we experience His gracious goodness, His gracious deliverance. As I said, you know, the chastening of the Lord is only going to go as far as God wants it to. And we might experience, like Lot, the gracious deliverance from that chastening, from that trial, whatever it might be. But the point is we need to respond accordingly, don't we? We need to respond accordingly. You see, God's chastening and God's goodness, they're opportunities for us to repent. They're opportunities for us to get things right with the Lord and to respond accordingly. 
and walk in fellowship with Him so we experience His abundant blessing upon our lives. You know, in Abraham and Lot, we really see a picture of two ways that we can live as believers. You know, both of these men made mistakes, didn't they? Abraham in going down into Egypt, Lot in choosing the plain of Jordan. They both made these decisions by sight rather than by faith. And as a result, they both experienced the chastening hand of the Lord upon them. But they responded differently. They responded differently. Abraham, when he was chastened by the Lord, he repented. He recognized his sin and where did he go? He went back to where he should have been. He went back to his altar. He went back to worshiping the Lord. Lot didn't listen to the Lord and he went straight back to his sin, straight back to his wickedness, straight back to Sodom. You see, we're all going to sin. We all sin and we all at times get our eyes off the Lord. And there may be times when God has to chasten us as his children. But we must, like Abraham, respond in faith and repent and return unto the Lord. Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. <clears throat> Lord, we thank you, Lord, for the example given to us in the Old Testament. Lord, we get these good examples and bad examples. Lord, the example of Abraham and how he responded to the chastening hand upon him. And then Lot and how he responded. Lord, may you help us to be like Abraham. Help us, Lord, to walk by faith. Help us, Lord, when we get out of fellowship with you and we experience your chastening hand, help us to repent. Help us to, to return unto you. Help us to, to take heed to the stern uh, warning that you give unto us, Lord. Lord, help us not to be like Lot and return back unto the, the sin, return back unto that life that you're trying to save us from. Lord, Lord, may you work in our hearts. You know where we reach out today. You know the struggles we each have. Lord, may you deal with us accordingly and may you help us, Lord, respond accordingly, I pray in Jesus' name.